welcome to the Fertility Conversations podcast. The goal of this podcast is to create more awareness about infertility and to provide support to people trying to conceive. Thank you for listening today, and we hope you will be encouraged. And now, here is your host, Ola. Welcome to another episode of Fertility Conversations. Today, we're joined by a lovely guest, Jessica who's here to give us some insights into the embryology part of IVF. Uh, Jessica loves her helping people to build their families. And she started her platform on social media explaining IVF to be able to uh, shed more light and provide more information about IVF and infertility because it's such a complex process. Her details will also be in the show notes. So welcome, Jessica, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yay. <laughs> so we usually say, uh, we usually start off by saying, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, so my name is Jessica. I live in the United States. I've been an embryologist since 2018 and really love my job. Absolutely love helping people build their families, working in the lab. Um, and then I started my page explaining IVF last year, actually, to kind of help bridge some of the knowledge gaps that come with IVF. Wonderful. Thank you. And we're so glad to have you here because again, we always have so many questions. So to be able to have you here to answer some of the many questions we have is such a blessing. So thank you for being here. Um, one of the many questions we have is what exactly is the IVF timeline? That's a good question. So the IVF timeline can sort of differ from person to person, but the time that the embryos are actually in the lab is pretty much the same everywhere. So um, the timeline can start at your initial consult with your IVF doctor. And then from there, it might take a couple of months before you actually begin the IVF process. And the only reason is because you might need some diagnostic tests to be done beforehand. Uh, You might require some time off for you know, personal reasons. So just because you go to an IVF clinic and have that initial consult doesn't necessarily mean that the process will start right away, but it can, it, it can normally start within a month or so, just depending. But then from there, the process really takes about uh, two to three weeks. So you would start your menstrual cycle and you'll start taking medications. In some cases, you might actually take medications beforehand, but in a, a lot of cases, you'll start taking medications when you start your menstrual cycle that the IVF cycle will be a part of. And those medications basically stimulate the ovaries so that multiple eggs will mature instead of just one, which is what would normally happen. And then uh, you take those for a few days and then you might take medications that you know help control the timing of ovulation. And that's important because you want to make sure ovulation is occurring soon after your egg retrieval procedure, not before, otherwise the eggs will be lost. So that process can take anywhere from um, anywhere from about maybe eight to 14 days, give or take, maybe a little bit more for some people, depending on how long it takes those uh, eggs to mature, the follicles that they're in to grow. So that process, like I said, can take anywhere from about like eight eight to 14 days. And then from there, you'll have your egg retrieval scheduled. And that's where everything sort of becomes more uniform in the timeline. That's normally like a, a six to seven day process. So you would do your egg retrieval on one day. If you're freezing your eggs, they would be frozen that day as well. Um, otherwise, if you're doing any insemination for uh, embryo culture, it would also be done that same day. The next day, the embryos would be checked to make sure they fertilize properly. And then they're given a couple of days to grow. So uh, some clinics will look at them. 
over the course of the, the next couple of days, but most clinics look at them five days after the insemination occurred. That's called day five in the IVF cycle. That's when the embryos can start to be uh, frozen. If you're doing a fresh transfer, that can occur on that day. If you're doing genetic testing, that can occur on that day. But any embryos that maybe aren't ready that day that are still growing, they'll get another day or two to grow, depending on how many days your clinic will uh, culture embryos for. So that's where uh, it varies a little bit in, in the lab, but for the most part, it's six to seven days. Thank you. That's so detailed. <laughs> so much actually goes on that we don't we don't realize, right? People don't realize that it can it can even differ because we always assume that it's the same for everyone. So it's good to know that. Thank you. And even with the IVF, sometimes people wonder what is ICSI and why how is it different from the standard IVF? And should we be doing ICSI all the time? Is it for everyone? Or can you shed some light on that? Absolutely. And there are actually newer studies that are coming out. So I'll talk a little bit about those too. But for the most part, there are two types of insemination that can occur. One is called ICSI and the other is called conventional or standard IVF or conventional insemination it has a couple of different names. So ICSI refers to taking one sperm and injecting it into one mature egg. And so that's a way to sort of first force fertilization to occur. And then after all of the eggs have been inseminated with the sperm, they go into the incubator overnight and they're checked the following day for fertilization. With the other form, the conventional or standard insemination or IVF as it's called, the sperm and eggs are all put into a couple of drops together and they're allowed to sort of interact and hopefully uh, fertilize overnight. So the problem is with that type of insemination, egg grading is not taken into account. So just briefly to touch on that, with ICSI, you actually clean the eggs before the insemination and you grade them to see if they're mature. So only eggs that are mature are the ones that are usually ICSI'd. Whereas with the other form of insemination, they're not graded beforehand. So all of the eggs go in with the sperm, but if they're not mature, they, they won't fertilize properly. So you can expect a lower fertilization rate with the standard or conventional method, but it's probably because um, some of the eggs that are going in there are not mature, but we don't know that going into it. So both, both methods are okay if there are no male factor issues at play. If there are male factor issues, such as a low sperm count, low motility, low morphology, maybe a high you know, DNA fragmentation, or if there's maybe unexplained infertility in the past or poor fertilization in the past, then you might wanna to turn to ICSI. And the reason for that is because you only need enough sperm for every mature egg with ICSI. Whereas for the other form, you need a lot more sperm for them to be able to get to the egg and perform the fertilization. Wow, thank you. It's good to know that because <laughs> you know, sometimes we all just want to do ICSI because you hear about it and you're like, oh, okay, maybe I should be doing ICSI, but you might not be required based on your individual right. situation. Right. And that's where those new studies are coming in. They're saying, you know, when there is no male factor infertility at play or no, you know, previous poor fertilization or other sort of underlying conditions that standard insemination might be, it should yield the same results as the ICSI. But again, there are situations where ICSI is absolutely needed. Otherwise your fertilization rate will be very poor with the conventional, uh, the conventional method. And I think that's where ICSI became so popular. A lot of clinics just do pretty much hundred percent ICSI. 
And really it's because it's a way to, again, force fertilization to occur. So you know that at least, you know, insemination is occurring and then you're hoping that fertilization occurs as well, but it's a way to know that insemination is at least occurring. Whereas with the other method, you're hoping that the eggs are mature. You're hoping that the sperm get to the egg. You're hoping they inseminate properly and fertilize properly. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. We know so much more now. <laughs> I have a better <laughs> understanding. And with the egg retrieval, sometimes, you know, we've had, I mean, I've had cycles before where there was no eggs retrieved. Um, until you wonder because there were follicles when you were doing the, the scans, you could see follicles going into the egg retrieval. Then you come out and there is no eggs. So you wonder how could that have been when there were, you know, seemingly big follicles that eggs should be in. So can you right. ex explain why that can happen or? Yeah, absolutely. I know it's really frustrating. I know it's absolutely frustrating for the patient, but it's frustrating for us too, because you spend all this time doing your monitoring, taking your medications, you have these follicles, you go in with yeah. expectations and then, you know, nothing. So yes, very frustrating. There are a couple of reasons why that can occur. So one reason might be that ovulation either occurred early or was occurring maybe right around the time of the process. So what that means is that that follicle still might be there, but the egg was already ovulated. And uh, sometimes it's because maybe the medication wasn't taken at the right time. It might be that maybe the uh, procedure was very, very late, you know, that maybe they were backed up a couple of hours, which isn't common, but it can happen. So those are a couple of reasons why ovulation might occur. And sometimes even when you take the trigger, some people just still ovulate early, even though it's uncommon. It, I have seen that happen. And unfortunately, once ovulation occurs, the eggs can't be retrieved because they're now floating basically into the fallopian tube and they, they just can't be retrieved via the egg retrieval. Another reason might just be a poor response to the medication or an abnormal response to the medication. And what happens there is the follicles grow, but the eggs inside of them either mature, uh, are not mature or they degenerate or there's no egg there at all. And when we see that a lot, it's with a condition known as diminished ovarian reserve, which means that the, the women don't have a lot of eggs remaining in their ovaries. We see that a lot with uh, women who are maybe in their 40s. And what happens is the follicles still might be there, but the eggs inside have either degenerated or they're not there, or again, they just did not mature properly. So maybe an egg is retrieved, but it's still not mature, meaning it's unusable. And then the other thing uh, could be that the egg still adhered to the follicle wall. So when the egg is inside of the follicle, it adheres to the wall of the follicle. And as it becomes more mature, it's easier for it uh, to aspirate or suck up the fluid with the egg inside of it. But what can happen sometimes is even when you aspirate that fluid, the egg still sticks to the inside of the follicle wall. And unfortunately, the eggs are too small to see on the ultrasound. So once you take the fluid, you really don't know if the egg's in there or not. And and you really can't go back in and, uh, you know, try to get the egg out once the fluid is aspirated. Wow. Sounds really complicated. So much goes into it. It's actually like a miracle when things go right, because there right? can be so many things that could go wrong. It's at every step of the process. I completely agree. Wow. And so when you when you, if you're able to get the eggs and then the sperm is fine and you fertilize, how do you then grade the embryos? 
so some uh, some clinics again they do look at the embryos on normally day three is a common time to look at the embryos some clinics do it the, the clinics I worked at do not but for the clinics that do what uh, they'll take the embryos out on day three just briefly for a couple of moments and they'll look to make sure that the cells are dividing. So at that point, you want to see at least six cells, if not more in the embryo, you want to make sure that there's not a lot of fragmentation. And that means that the cells are trying to divide, but instead of dividing into two even cells, they're breaking apart into smaller pieces. Some fragmentation is perfectly fine. But if there's, you know, if the fragmentation is taking up 80% of that embryo, it's usually not a good sign. It means that the embryo will probably not grow from there. So day three checks, they, um, they're, they're good, um, but they don't really tell you about what will happen on day five, meaning that you might have an embryo that's a little slower growing on day three, and it might turn into a beautiful embryo on day five or vice versa. You might have this beautiful day three embryo that stops growing at the eight cell stage. So it's good, but it's not definitive is what I should say. It's, it's more of an indicator of what they estimate will happen. But the more common embryo grading starts to kick in on day five or six or seven. And that's when we look at those embryos and we can start that whole like 5AA, 5AB process. So <laughs> what we see there are three criteria. The first criteria is that you wanna make sure that the embryo is at a certain stage of development. So we look for normally around the expanded blastocyst stage, that's the number four if, you, if your clinic uses the numbering system. And what that means is that the embryo has divided into about 150 cells, give or take a few, and the shell around the embryo is starting to thin out as that embryo grows inside of it. We also see a giant um, cavity called a blastocele. It's like a fluid-filled cavity inside the embryo. And then we also have two distinct cell lines at that point. We have uh, a clump of cells that sort of sits off to the side. When we look at the pictures of the embryos, we sort of see like a circle or clump of cells that sits off to one side. That's called the inner cell mass. That's the part of the embryo that ultimately will develop into the baby. And then you see uh, cells that line the shell of the embryo, and those are called the trifectoderm cells, and those ultimately become the placenta or anything that is not the baby. And so we use uh, a grading system. So the first one is uh, the, nu the number. So if you have that expanded blastocyst, it would be a, a number four. And then after that shell starts to thin out, a hole will actually start to form in it, and the embryo will actually start to hatch out of that shell. So almost if you think of kind of like a chicken egg, it's similar where when they're ready to hatch, they'll poke a little hole in and they'll start to hatch out of it. It's very similar. So that would be a hatching blastocyst that would be given a number five. And then uh, eventually that embryo will completely hatch out of that shell. And that's when you see pictures of embryos with no shell around them, they're fully hatched. And that's a number six on the normal grading system, numbering system, which is called the Gardner scale. So that's the first thing that we look at. The second is that clump of cells called the inner cell mass, that part that ultimately becomes the baby. And we grade those on an ABC scale. Some clinics also use a D scale, but ABC is the most common. So uh, A is the best grade that you can give it. That means it's really compact. It looks exactly like it's supposed to. It's like a textbook perfect inner cell mass. A B is a fair grade, uh, which is the, the most common. Just because it's a B grade does not make it bad at all. Uh, B grades are very, very common. But C grades are what we call poor quality. And th that means that what we're looking at is below average. Maybe the inner cell mass is there, but it's really small. Maybe the cells look a little dark or grainy. So it's what we call below average. And the same grading system is used for the trifectoderm. So those cells that line the shell of the embryo that become the placenta, we also give them an ABC, sometimes D grade. A would be the best, meaning it's very uniform. The cells all look 
very similar. There's no gaps. So textbook perfect trifectoderm. B would be fair average, which is a same criteria for the inner cell mass. And C is below average. So maybe there are no cells, big gaps, not, not a lot of cells. Maybe they're dark and grainy. So if you have a 5AA embryo, you have a hatching embryo that has a beautiful textbook perfect inner cell mass and trifectoderm. Wow. <coughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So basically I was saying that why is that sometimes this perfect embryos don't implant and the ones that did not appear so perfect based on the gradient system then implant. So is it because the gradient doesn't really matter or are there other factors at play as well? So the grading is important. It can tell you if nothing, if no other variables are considered, the embryo grading can tell you which embryo has the highest chance of success. So a better looking embryo will have a higher chance of success if you don't consider anything else. But grading is only one factor when it comes to an embryo's overall success rate. That could mean that the embryo might be genetically abnormal. So even if it's a beautiful 5AA embryo, if it doesn't have the right amount of DNA in it, it, it will either not implant, it has a very high chance of miscarrying, or it could lead to pregnancy or birth complications or genetic defects. So that's one thing to consider that even if your embryo looks beautiful, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's genetically normal and vice versa. An embryo that might look below average could be genetically normal and result in a healthy live birth. Um, another factor, of course, when it comes to the success rates has nothing to do with the embryo. It actually has to do with the uterine environment. And that could mean that um, you might have the perfect embryo, but if it doesn't have the perfect uterine environment to implant in, then either implantation will not occur or miscarriage can occur or, you know, pregnancy complications down the road. So it's only one factor when it comes to an embryo's overall success. It is important, but it's not definitive or can't guarantee really much of anything. <laughs> Okay, that's good to know, because I think that's something that comes up a lot in the community mm -hmm. and people trying to conceive, just wondering what's going on, how come this mm -hmm. didn't plan when it seems so perfect. So it's good mm -hmm. to know there's other issues at play. Uh, but what about mosaic embryos? What are those? And because, again, people talk about that, should I, you know, what's a mosaic embryo and what exactly mm -hmm. does that mean for me? And that's a hot topic right now, too, because newer studies are coming out about mosaics all the time because they're relatively, <coughs> sorry, they're relatively new. Uh, mosaicism has only been reported on genetic testing since, I think, 2015. So it's a very new concept. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of the IVF community just doesn't quite know what to do with mosaic embryos right now. But luckily, a lot of the newer studies have found that at least these mosaics, which I'll talk about in a second, but at least these mosaics that kind of border on being normal actually might be okay for transfer. But uh, a mosaic embryo is an embryo that has two different cell lines. And that means that some of the cells in the embryo have a certain genetic makeup or a certain number of chromosomes, whereas another portion of the embryo has a different genetic makeup or different chromosomes. And when that happens, it could be one of two things. It could be that the embryo, when it started as one cell, it might've had the right number of chromosomes, but whenever those cells started to divide, there was some kind of error in cell division where the DNA was not evenly dispersed between the two cells. So now you have one cell with a, a wrong amount of DNA, maybe it has an extra chromosome, <clears throat> and then, <clears throat> sorry, and then you have a, an embryo over here that has a different amount of DNA or a different number of chromosomes. Those cells then go on to replicate. 
their DNA when they have cell division. And what you end up with is this embryo with 150 cells or so, but you know, some of the, a portion of the cells have this number of chromosomes where another portion of the embryo has this number of chromosomes. And it all results from that early division where something happened that caused um, that to happen. The, uh, that caused the, it's called non-disjunction where the uh, DNA does not evenly disperse during cell division. So at some point when that non-disjunction occurred, it caused those two different cell lines. So that's called uh, what one way that mosaicism can happen. Another way might be if the original embryo had the wrong amount of DNA. And what it does is it tries to correct that error somewhere through cell division. So somehow it's called self-correction and the cells actually try to fix the error, but still you're going to have cells that have the wrong DNA because that's what it started with. So that one cell divided into two, which then divides into four, but somewhere along the line, the cells tried to start correcting it. You still end up with two different portions of the embryo, one with the right amount and one with the wrong amount of DNA. So those are two ways that you can see mosaic embryos. Um, it normally means that more than 20% of the cells in the embryo have the wrong amount of DNA. And so when we look at a genetic testing report, we have a couple of options that we see. We see euploid or normal, we see mosaic, and then we see aneuploid or abnormal. Aneuploid means that there's a lot of abnormal cells in the embryo. Normally it's about 80% or more of the cells, um, at least in the sample that we're taking for the biopsy, which should represent the overall genetic makeup of the entire embryo. So if most of those cells are genetically abnormal, it's considered aneuploid. And then if like 20% or less are abnormal, it's considered euploid. But then you have this gray area in the middle, which is where mosaicism stemmed from. Those embryos do tend to have lower success rates, meaning they're less likely to implant, they're more likely to miscarry. But the newer studies are finding that at least those that sort of border the normal level, so maybe they have 35% um, abnormal cells, maybe those ones actually have the ability to self-correct. Maybe they, you know, they still might have a chance of resulting in a healthy live birth. And the studies are really interesting that are coming out where a lot of these mosaic, low-level mosaic embryos that are being transferred are perfectly fine. They're healthy at birth and their genetic makeup at birth is normal. So it's interesting. We're at a very important time right now with mosaic embryos where maybe they are more hopeful than we think. Now, when you get into the ones that kind of border the abnormal side, those ones still don't have good results. So they still tend to have very low success rates and those are still a little kind of iffy in the IVF world. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so important. It's good to see that there's more research going into that because again, quite a few mosaics end up from the genetic report and people always wonder, what do I do? Do I transfer, do I not transfer? So it's good that there's more research being looked into that. So we kind of have better information about how to proceed if that's the case, if uh, one ends up with mosaic embryos. So thank you. And of course, another big topic in the fertility community and people trying to conceive is always, or perhaps even people planning for the future, is egg freezing. People are talking a lot about fertility preservation when you're mm -hmm. younger to freeze your eggs if you're not sure if you want to you're not even sure you want to have kids in the future or not but just freeze it so that way in the future you have something that you can you know consider or use if there's any issues with your own eggs at that time 
But then people also say that egg freezing might not be best, that embryo freezing might be better because then when you tore the eggs in the future, uh, it might not be as good or perhaps egg embryo freezing is much better because when you tore it, it's usually, usually retains the quality uh, versus egg freezing. So can you Definitely. share a little bit about that in terms of egg freezing versus embryo freezing? Absolutely. And yes, egg freezing is great when you're young. If you want to hold off having a family and you're able to do it, I know it can be costly, um, but it could save you a lot of money down the road. If you really do plan to postpone your family until maybe after 35 years of age, of course, no one can look that far into the future. But if it's something that maybe you have in your life plans, um, I definitely recommend it if you're able to. Um, it will definitely save you a lot of time and stress down the road because the younger you are, the more likely the genetic makeup of your eggs is normal. And that's important because we don't want abnormal eggs. They could lead to abnormal embryos. So definitely encourage it. Um, but yes, one thing to keep in mind with eggs is that they're only one cell where embryos, when you freeze them, are multiple cells, in some cases, 150 or so cells. So if one cell in an embryo does not survive the thawing process, that embryo will still be fine. If one cell does not survive the egg thawing process, that entire egg is unfortunately lost. So eggs are definitely more fragile, and we do see lower success when they're thawed for that reason. They're, they're more fragile. I call them more finicky. They're just a little harder to work with. Um, you have to kind of... Uh, you have to kind of thaw them a little, you have to keep a better eye on them when you thaw them, basically, because if you see any signs of degeneration, you have to catch it really quickly with the eggs, where again, with the embryos, of course, you don't want any degeneration. But again, if you have a couple of cells in an embryo that don't survive the thawing process, your embryo should be perfectly fine. It has all those cells. So definitely something to keep in mind is if you have the option to freeze embryos, say you're with your partner who you plan to be with for a forever for a, you know, a long time or someone you really want to have children with, then yes, embryo freezing and thawing will have a better uh, survival rate when it comes to doing the thaw. But egg freezing is still promising. It doesn't mean that all of the eggs will not survive. It just means to go into it realistically, knowing that there's a chance that some of them will not survive. So it's good to have a good number of eggs frozen if possible. So maybe if you have 10 or more, I would say that you're in a good place. Okay, thank you for sharing that. And, and it's good to know, because I think when you have a better understanding of, you know, listening to you and seeing that, okay, it's one cell versus so many other cells in an embryo, then you can understand why there could be potential issues, mm -hmm. um, you know, with the eggs versus the embryo. So thank you for uh, sharing that. Uh, in terms of the IVF process, you know, sometimes there are a few add-ons that people might want to consider, and we're not sure which ones we should opt for. One of the couple of popular ones is assisted hatching. Mm -hmm. So what is it exactly? I think for people like to know to even have a better understanding to see if that's something they should even consider or not. Yes. So assisted hatching is a really actually very simple procedure. What we do is we take a very small laser pulse under a microscope and we actually make a couple of holes in the shell or the zona that surrounds the embryo. And what that does is it confirms for us that that embryo has a way of hatching if it wasn't already hatching or fully hatched before. So if we thaw an embryo for a transfer and it isn't already thawing or um, it isn't already hatching on its own, we can perform the assisted hatching and we don't have to worry about did that embryo hatch out after the transfer. And 
the, the theory behind that is that they say the shell can harden from the freezing and thawing process. So it is important to do the assisted hatching if you're doing a frozen embryo. Uh, but one thing to also keep in mind is if you do any genetic testing or PGT, the embryo will already be hatched because it has to be hatched so we can get in to get the cells inside of the embryo. So if you've had your, if your embryo underwent genetic testing before, it shouldn't need to be assisted hatched uh, before your transfer. So that's one thing to keep in mind. If it's already hatching or fully hatched on its own, there's no reason why they should do any assisted hatching on it. Um, but if you do a frozen transfer, I would say maybe personally to consider doing assisted hatching only because if the theory that the shell is harder from the freezing and thawing is true, it might be harder for that embryo to hatch after the transfer and it needs to hatch in order to implant. Um, other than that, there aren't a lot of new studies about assisted hatching and whether or not they work. I think it's just become something that's so routine in clinics that maybe the studies just weren't worth doing because, you know, clinics just do them anyway, do it anyway. Um, but, you know, it, I wouldn't say it's something that's necessary. I know it can be costly and everything, but I, if it were me, I would, I would do it if I were doing a frozen transfer. Okay, good to know. Thank you for sharing. And it's good to know that if you actually did genetic tests and then that's already been done. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we won't have that. And then speaking about genetic testing, uh, PGTA and PGTM, <laughs> I'm not really sure what they either mean. <laughs> but um, can you share more like a little bit about that and why, when should we consider that as an option? Absolutely. So PGTA, uh, PGT is pre-implantation genetic testing. So that's the testing that we were talking about earlier. The A stands for aneuploidy. And aneuploidy refers to if the uh, embryos have the right chromosomal makeup. So just briefly, any normal cell in the human body should have 23 pairs of chromosomes. So 46 total, one set from the egg, one set from the sperm. That's what we're all made up of. So each cell in our body should have that genetic makeup. Uh, but there are situations where the embryos, unfortunately, do not have the right genetic makeup. You know, they have an extra chromosome. They're missing a chromosome. Part of the chromosome is missing. And as we talked about, it's usually 80% or more of the cells in the sample have the wrong amount of DNA. So when we do a biopsy of an embryo for testing, we take about five to 10 cells out of that embryo that should have about 150 cells. But what we, what we, uh, the theory is that because the DNA replicates in the embryo, it should, uh, all cells in the embryo should have the same genetic makeup. So by only taking five or 10 cells, it can, uh, it can represent the entire population of cells in the embryo. And we actually take cells from the trophectoderm, the part that becomes the placenta, and that's because we don't want to damage the part that will become the baby. And the studies are actually pretty promising for that. They do show, you know, we took embryos that were abnormal and we took a couple cells from the inner cell mass and we took a couple of cells from the trophectoderm and they actually did show concordance, meaning that they did show a very similar genetic makeup. So we feel confident when we do the testing that by taking those five to 10 cells, we're taking um, the, we're getting a good representation of the entire cell population of the embryo. That's just a little side note. So <laughs> what the uh, genetic testing does is it actually looks at what percentage of the cells in that sample have the right amount of DNA. So that's where we get those percentages from. If 80% or more cells in the sample have the wrong amount of DNA, that embryo is considered aneuploid or abnormal. And that's where that PGTA comes in. P 
PGTM is a little bit different. The M stands for monogenic, and that is a, a certain type of genetic disease. An example might be cystic fibrosis, um, sickle cell anemia, uh, things like that, but that's not very common. So we only do that in situations where uh, either the sperm or the egg source is a carrier of a genetic condition or affected by a genetic condition. Uh, but normally what happens is people before they do IVF, they'll do carrier screening. It's usually a blood test or a saliva test, and it can determine if you're a carrier of a panel of genetic diseases, again, including right. cystic fibrosis, Huntington's, there's a, there's a whole slew of things that they can test for. If you, if they find that the egg source and the sperm source, both are carriers of the same condition, then I believe 50%, there's a 50, 50% chance that the embryo will be affected by that disease. And in yeah. some cases that can be lethal. I mean, that could mean that uh, the child could have cystic fibrosis or some other kind of genetic disease. So the carrier screening is important for that reason, because it can help determine the percentage or chance that the offspring will be affected by that particular disease. And that's the only time that we really do PGTM or in those situations. So it's not routinely performed, but it can also be performed with PGTA. So for example, you might have an embryo that's not affected by cystic fibrosis, even though you carry both, you know, both uh, sources carry it, but it could be genetically abnormal, in which case, although it's unaffected, it's still genetically abnormal. Good to know. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. And, you know, when she's in a clinic, what are some of the areas that we should focus on uh, with the embryologist? Because, you know, we all talk about choosing a fertility clinic, what you do, uh, check if they're responding to your emails, see how the environment of the clinic is, see if the doctor seems to understand and listens to you. But what about the embryologist? Are there any questions we should be asking about that or any attention we should be paying to what happens in the lab? Should we be asking any questions about that at all? You can. You can definitely ask some questions about the lab. Uh, the things that I would maybe ask are how many cycles do you do in a year and how many embryologists do you have on staff? Um, and that uh, every embryologist is very different. We all work very differently. Some of us work better at a faster pace. Like we work very efficiently at a fast pace. Some embryologists prefer to take their time and really focus on each task. Just like people, we're all different. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have an embryologist who really takes their time, but there are a lot of procedures then maybe that embryologist is, is overwhelmed or something, vice versa. If you have an embryologist who works quickly, but they don't do a lot of cases, then, you know, that embryologist will get everything done uh, but there could also be multiple embryologists working. So a lot of labs that I work with have, you know, three, four, five embryologists working at a time. So that's usually not a huge issue, but it is something that you could ask, you know, how many embryologists do you have working versus how many cycles are you doing at a time? And um, I think just a really important thing too, is just to ask the overall success rates for the clinic. And a lot of that boils down to the lab too. Like what is your uh, ICSI rate? What is your uh, blastocyst rate, meaning how many fertilized eggs develop into blastocysts that can be transferred. Um, what is your pregnancy or transfer rate? You know, how many embryos implant or, and that sort of all boils down to the lab because they're the ones who are doing a lot of those procedures. So that's certainly something that you could ask too. That even might be more important than, you know, how many people are on staff versus yeah. <laughs> how many cycles. Wow. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Those are really important questions that you might not even consider at all because we're so focused in other aspects of it. So mm -hmm. thank you. That was really helpful. And when you talked about success, you know, you know, your opinion as an embryologist, any insights and in how we can generally uh, increase chances of success when going through the IVF process? That's a question I get asked a lot. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, so I get asked that question a lot. And um, for sperm, there are ways to improve quality. With eggs, it's a little bit more difficult because women are born with all of the eggs that they'll ever have. And so women, their, their eggs are sort of at their prime in their early 20s to mid 20s. And that's evolutionary, meaning that not so long ago, it was more common for women to have uh, children younger. Now, as we're advancing as a society or as a culture, our bodies just haven't kept up with that yet. Our eggs are only meant to be there or our eggs are only meant to be at their like most optimal state you know, in our early to mid twenties. And then from there, the quality actually starts to slowly decline. And then we see that rapid decline normally around 36 years of age. And then of course, women, the average age for menopause is I think about 50 to 51. So when you think about it, it's, it's a, it's a good amount of time, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not huge considering that women are waiting to have their children or start their families or whatever it may be. Um, but it's hard to improve the quality if it's already been declining is what I'm trying to say. So we have this natural decline and there's really no scientific way to improve the quality after that, but there might be ways to maintain the quality. So it might be good to start when you're younger with um, good lifestyle uh good lifestyle changes, like uh, a healthy diet, a normal exercise routine. It's, you know, all the things they say in life, like don't smoke, yeah. moderate your drinking, try to walk, eat better, just everything that you can do for a healthier life, avoid stress, try to avoid toxins for the eggs. It, it could work. It's just not scientifically proven that it can actually improve the quality, but a lot of people have found success with this. So that's wonderful. Um, for men, it's a little bit different. Men actually produce sperm from puberty on. And so they go through constant production of sperm. So you can actually improve sperm quality because if you start these changes early, um, for example, a lot of men might need to take a certain supplement or a hormonal therapy regimen, right? Because maybe that's the problem they're having is a hormonal imbalance. Now, if you can go in and you can fix that early, about 90 days later, which is about how long it takes for new sperm to be produced, you can actually see changes in their quality or their uh, motility. So those are good ways, I think, that you can help to at least maintain or at least in the male case, improve the quality, which can then improve your success rates. Um, but again, not scientifically proven for women yet, though I am hopeful, but I think the most important thing is being able to maintain the quality as early as you can. So making those good, healthy choices early could help you down the road because it can help to at least maintain that good egg quality instead of it declining at a faster rate. Yes, thank you. Oh, it's, it's so, you know, don't, don't we wish we just like, uh, men that had the chance of continue to produce eggs every right. year in 90 days I completely agree it's not fair <laughs> yeah no you know they have to do all the extra work for the IVF as well 
but mm-hmm. but anyways it's good that there's more research going into it and again like you said if there's ways we can maintain the quality at least keep eating right and we can't do anything about the age that's gonna happen anyways so we can focus more on the things that we can do and try mm-hmm. to um, maintain a healthy lifestyle as much as possible right so you know it's been really amazing listening to you but i just wonder uh, if there's anything else that you'd like to share with anyone considering IVF right now, anyone listening and considering IVF, anything, any other information that you'd like to share as an embryologist that um, you think might be helpful? I would say a couple of things. If you're, you know, beginning the process, do, you know, make sure that you feel comfortable comfortable at your clinic. Don't be afraid to ask for the success rates for your particular situation. So an IVF clinic might have a good success rate, but they might also primarily see women in their mid twenties who have perfect, you know, perfect eggs or perfect sperm or so it's good to ask specifically for your success rates. Like what is my rate for a 35 year old with PCOS? And my husband has low sperm count. Like what are my chances of success there? Those are going to differ from someone who's maybe 25 with, you know, per- perfect eggs and perfect sperm. They're, they're going to be different rates. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. And it's really important that you feel comfortable. You will spend a good amount of time at your IVF clinic and you'll, especially when you get into uh, the IVF procedure, you might be there every other day. So it's important that you feel comfortable. It's important that you feel heard, that your questions are answered. Uh, confidence is key. And Um, I would also just say to always set realistic expectations. I think a lot of people think that because they're going to do IVF, they're guaranteed a successful outcome. And that is often, you know, a lot of people for that, for a lot of people, that is completely true. IVF is what they needed. They, they have a successful outcome, but just know that your first chance, your first cycle might not be successful. Your second cycle might be or maybe you require a couple more. And in some cases, unfortunately, you might have to turn to alternative options because going into the IVF with your sperm or your partner's sperm or your eggs or whatever it may be, that just might not end up being successful. You might have to consider looking into just alternative options at that point. Yeah, thank you so much. That was really, really helpful. And that's so important that you say that because again, oftentimes with IVF, you hear that it's all these you know, it's almost like it's a guaranteed outcome, but it's not mm-hmm. reality. So it's right. good to go in that with realistic expectations and just be willing to to know what the um, potential options might be or available things to consider. So thank you so much. Of course. Um, it has been amazing having you on here, Jessica. I feel like I just like went to school. And I'm sure <laughs> everyone <laughs> that's listened as well feels the same. We have learned so much because again, the embryology part of the whole process, we just don't really understand. I mean, people have so many questions, you don't know who to ask. So to have you come here and join us and answer our many questions has been amazing. So thank you so much of course. Uh, for your time today, for you know taking the time to answer all our questions and uh, for also you know creating your page because again your page if there's no one I mean if there's anyone listening and you're not following at explaining IVF you need to follow um, Jessica's page because it really is amazing so informative I love your videos I love how you make everything seem so simple and you know understandable understandable for anyone reading it so thank you so much for taking the time to do that because you, you know you don't have to like you already do your work at and work but not you're doing this just to you know educate people and create awareness so that's amazing so thank you so much thank cool. you thank you yes i love doing it so <laughs> yes thank, thank you. you 
Yeah. So you're such a blessing to the community. So thank you for all that you keep doing. And uh, all your details will also be in the show notes for people to follow you and reach out to you. Uh, what's the best way to reach out to you? Is it on Instagram or how can people connect with you if they want to reach out to you? Yes, I've shifted most of my attention to my Instagram just because that seems to be where I connect with the most people. Uh, so feel free to send me a message about any questions you might have. I'll do my best to answer them, but I can't answer everything. A lot of stuff does have to go through your doctor, um, but I'm happy to at least try to answer or point you in the direction that you would need to go to get the answers you need. Thank you very much, Jessica. And uh, thank you again for being here today. And we hope that we can have you again in the near future uh, to further help us with more questions. But we thank you so much for all that you're doing to help and support the trying to conceive community. You're such a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on the Fertility Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Fertility Conversations. If there are any topics you would like to have discussed, please send an email to fertilityconversations at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you again for listening. Take care of yourself and do stay hopeful.